Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're just so glad that you're here today. It's great to see all of you. And we would invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of Titus and chapter number 2. Titus chapter number 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible, turn to page 168 in the back part, and you would be at Titus chapter 2. And over the years, I've learned that uh, people tend to worship differently. Sometimes it's just because I think we have a different personal style. Sometimes at certain periods we may worship one way or we may worship another way, but we tend to worship differently when it comes to body stance and heart outlook. Some people tend to be very up and outward when they worship. Uh, You might see them even stand up and, and to raise their arms up. And I think when we're using that body stance and have that outlook, It's just a sign of openness before God. It's almost like we're saying to God, Lord, you are are welcome here in this life. Others of us have a a little different tendency maybe when it comes to body stance and heart outlook, and I tend to be more in this second group, and that is that when we worship, our stance tends to be maybe a little more low and downward. And if you tend to worship that way, I think that's just an expression of some humility before God and and a sense of unworthiness before Him. Now, both of those different ways of worshiping are totally valid, and there may be moments when you use one particular stance or heart outlook, and at times you'll use a different one. But I just simply want to share with you, as we have been going through our series on Amazing Grace, I have had this sense of going lower and down before the Lord as we go through each week's message. There's been this growing sense of humility and unworthiness on my part. And here's really what's been happening. As we've been going through this series, I've been somewhat overcome related to my ingratitude towards His amazing grace. And I have to confess to you, Too often, my gratitude has been too feeble, too frail, too flimsy. Too frequently, it has been shallow and superficial and surfacy. And this series, in some ways, has exposed my own heart and reminded me how much I personally need to review the grace of God, how much I need to revel in the grace of God, how much I personally need the grace of God to take me to school every single day. And it's really made me see how much I need to look at His amazing grace to refresh the gratitude in my own soul. So I hope in some ways you've gotten some good worship time out of this series. We've been doing a series we've entitled Amazing Grace, and we have said that grace is God's greatest legacy. And the goal that we have set from the very beginning, you remember it? It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, and that is our goal would be that we would be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
Early on, we talked about some signs of an individual having a weak grasp on the grace of God. And we said we have a weak grasp when we are confused on how we receive forgiveness from God. That we have a weak grasp and we are unsure if we're going to be able to maintain our salvation. That we have a weak grasp on grace when we are judgmental towards those who are different from us. We have a weak grasp on grace when we have trouble forgiving other people. We have a weak grasp on grace when we have difficulty being motivated to serve God. And we have a weak grasp. It's a true sign of a weak grasp on grace when we struggle deeply with pride. Grace is all over the place in the Bible. As the New Testament letters are written, very frequently, right at the beginning of them, part of the greeting is the idea of grace to you. And oftentimes, the blessing that comes at the end of some of those letters mentions grace and how God's grace should be with you. In all of all of these sessions that we've been learning, one of the things that comes to the forefront is that grace wants to teach us things. Ultimately, grace is to permeate every aspect of our life. It is to permeate our thinking, it is to permeate our speaking, and it is to permeate our doing. Now, we have before us an interesting passage of Scripture in Titus chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles open, I would like to read verses 11 to 14 and would invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. But I want you to notice these special verses. It says this in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, as we conclude our series on amazing grace today, we're going to have a two-pronged plan. The first thing we're going to do is to give a quick review of amazing grace. Very quickly, we're going to review at what we've covered the previous eight sessions. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to see how amazing grace takes us to school. So that is our two-pronged plan for today. First of all, a very quick review of amazing grace, and then we're going to see how amazing grace takes us to school. So let's do a very quick review. You might remember the definition of grace that we have shared all along. And that is, grace is God's generous, undeserved goodness. It is a free, undeserved gift. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on what we promise. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on our merit. It is unearned, God's grace is. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. And that is what makes it amazing. We've sung several times and referred to the classic song, Amazing Grace. And we talked about that line from it, the very first line, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, how pleasant, 
how gratifying, how delightful is grace. And we have seen in our previous weeks together that our salvation is by grace. He did all the work. As it says in 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And as we learn from Romans 4.24, we are justified, declared righteous legally before God as a gift by his grace. Our salvation is by grace. It's by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone alone. Now, I want you to imagine a certain situation. Imagine that the wealthiest man in the world decides to venture into a shoddy, seedy, dilapidated portion of the worst inner city that you know. And this wealthiest man in the world comes into that shoddy, seedy, dilapidated inner city, and he gathers together a group of derelicts, a group of deviates, individuals who are grungy and dirty and filthy. They're individuals because of their state in life that are virtually helpless and without hope. And so this wealthiest man in the world takes them and does something interesting with them. He gathers them together and he says, I'm taking you home. And he has this, of course, fabulous estate. And he says to them, I want you to clean yourselves up and I'm going to give you a refreshing shower. And then we're going to sit down and we're going to have meals together. And then I'm going to provide you with all the clothes that you need, the finest clothing that I can buy, I provide for you. And then he spends days giving to them words of affirmation and words of hope. And then finally, he springs something on them. He says, I want you to all understand that everything that I have is now yours. You are going to be my heirs. Everything I possess is yours. Now, if such a thing were to happen in life and we were to hear that story told, we would go, that is amazing. And the truth, of course, is is that's exactly what God has done for us. You see, before we came to know him personally, we were living lives of darkness and corruption. We were spiritually grungy and spiritually dirty and filthy. We were in the state in which we were living helpless and without hope. And yet God, even when he knew that we were rebelling against him, we were declared his enemies, said as he gathered us together, I'm going to give you my grace and I want to make you my heirs. See, men and women, that is amazing grace. Our salvation is by grace. We saw that our salvation is secure by grace. We learn from Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, 
that when we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us as our pledge, our guarantee that one day we're going to walk through the gates of heaven and look right into the face of Jesus Christ. Salvation is secure by grace, partly because, as we learn from 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is there representing us in heaven. When we mess up, when we go off the map, He is there to say, I paid for that. I died for that. That is covered completely. Our salvation is by grace. Our salvation is secure by grace. And we've seen that we are to live by grace. We learn from Hebrews 4.16, that we can go at any time we need to the throne of grace, and the grace will be provided whenever we need it. Grace for whatever place we may find ourselves in. And so we are to live by grace. And we saw that His grace is sufficient to sustain us, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. We're to live by His grace. And then there's that word of testimony that we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14, where Paul, who experienced things that none of us in this room will ever experience, steps up and says, in my life, His grace was more than abundant. Our salvation is by grace. Our salvation is secure by grace. We are to live by grace. And we saw, too, that His wisdom, His grace provides all the wisdom that we need to live our life. And we saw that His wisdom is an expression of His undeserved goodness to us. And therefore, because that is true, we need to make wisdom at every moment priority in our life. We need to seek wise counsel regularly. We need to let His wisdom, which is an expression of His undeserved goodness and His grace, be our coach as we live our life. And then last time we were together, we saw the practical principles of amazing grace. As we seek to live a life strategically and wisely in this life on this planet, uh, we need to deal with some unaddressed issues from Scripture that the Bible doesn't talk about. And what does wisdom say we ought to do about those things? And so we looked at these practical principles of amazing grace. And they're principles of grace that will allow us to steer away from ditches we tend to go in. One ditch is the ditch of license. Remember that? Where we're just, we say, I'm just free to do as I please. So if the Bible doesn't say I should or I shouldn't, I'm just going to do it. And His practical principles of amazing grace will allow us to steer away from another ditch, and that is the ditch of legalism, where because the Bible doesn't address it, I'm going to artificially fabricate a list of rules that are beyond Scripture, but I'm going to hold myself and everyone else to that list. You see, we have seen that His grace is indeed amazing, amazing grace. But what we really want to look at today, and that's been our review, we want to look about how God's plan is that amazing grace would take us to school. I don't know if you felt this way for the last number of weeks, but We've been enrolled in a course. It's called Amazing Grace. And God wants us to learn something from it. 
And this passage we have before us in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, summarizes it well. Let's go back to it. Let's look at it in more detail. Notice it says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. That verb that is translated there, appeared, is the word that we get our word in English from, the word epiphany. And if you have an epiphany, you have this sudden manifestation, this sudden realization of something. And what he's saying is that the grace of God has an appeared as an epiphany. It's been like the rising of the blazing sun before us. The grace of God has appeared, and then it goes on to say, bringing salvation to all men, bringing salvation with it. You've had, we've had this epiphany, like the rising of the blazing sun, the grace of God, and it brings with it salvation. Let your eyes go down to chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, where I think it expands on this idea of the grace of God bringing salvation. Notice it says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, what happened? He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. We can't stack up enough good. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ our Savior, so that, verse 7, being justified, legally declared righteous by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, the grace of God has appeared, and it brings with it salvation to all men. What does that really mean? Well, it means that salvation is accessible to anyone. Salvation is accessible to both Mary the prostitute and to Mary the virgin. It is accessible to the tough outdoorsman, Peter, as it is to the highly educated Paul. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. But then I want you to notice what it goes on to say. This is part of going to school on the grace of God. Verse 12, instructing us. You see, as we've been going through this series, the grace of God is being designed by God to teach us, to train us, to, if you would, to educate us, to motivate us. I like to put it this way. God's plan is that grace would be our life coach. Our life coach. Remember that little scenario I gave of the wealthiest man who would come and, and gather all those people together and take them home and rescue them in the way that he did? Can you, can you imagine the lessons that there would be for those individuals who'd been rescued from that dilapidated inner city environment in which they were living? And we could probably write you know, if we knew that scenario happened, we could write a little script for the lessons that they needed to learn from that. Well, so there are lessons for us, you see. 
as the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to us, instructing us and teaching us. Let me just pause for a moment. Let me ask you a question. You don't need to answer this out loud. I just want you to think about it for a moment. How well have you been paying attention in the school of grace? Just really think about how you would answer that. How well have you been paying attention in the school of grace? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, notice this, to do a double denial, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Let's look more closely at that. What does grace want to teach us? First of all, to say no to ungodliness. I think the New Living Translation uses the phrase godless living. What does that really mean? What does godless living mean? I think at the core it means this, living our life as if God doesn't exist. You see, that's what's going on with people all around us. It's God-less living. They're living their life as if God doesn't even exist. Now, if I could flip that around, it might look like this, needing Him every day. Needing Him every day. Now, again, I don't know. Certainly, this is not just me. This is likely true for you. But I can be so prone to even cruise through a day without really checking in with God. In fact, I think we can be so prone, we can sometimes do that for a week. That's really living our life as if God didn't really exist. And we need to say no to godless living. But it goes on to say, we need to say no also to worldly desires. What's that referring to? Well, I think it's referring to the cravings that are characteristic of the culture in which we live. Cravings that are characteristic of the world. We're to say no to those things. And Those things would include all kinds of cravings that are characteristic of the culture. Illegitimate sexual desire outside of a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. We're to say no to those things. It would include things like materialism, just being into the stuff thing. We're to say no to that because that is a craving that is characteristic of the culture that is out of bounds. We're to say no, I believe, to things like the unbridled pursuit of pleasure. That's one of the biggest problems we have in our culture is there's just this unbridled pursuit of pleasure. I want to feel good. I'm into feeling good. That's what I am pursuing, and we're to say no to that. Another craving that is characteristic of the culture is just self-worship. And so much of what goes on in the culture is just self-worship. It's about me. You know, marriage is about me. Relationships are about me. It's all about me. What am I getting out of it? And grace teaches us where to say no to those things. When you're talking about worldly desires, it reminds me of of what John writes in 1 John 2.16. 
And he talks about all that is in the world. And he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And, and I like to just look at this this way. Maybe this will be helpful for you. Uh, the lust of the flesh is the craving to do, to gratify our senses. The lust of the eyes is the craving to have, the, the craving to covet things. And the pride of life is the craving to be, to elevate one's self. John says, these are all the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And then he has this little phrase at the end, and he says, these things are not from the Father. See, those are the things that we are to say no to. Can you imagine the incongruity? Think of this little story that I laid out of all these derelicts and these deviates and and they're rescued by the wealthiest man in the world, and they're brought in, and they're cleaned up, and they're given all this privilege. They're given a hope. They're given a future. They're, they're adopted into this life of privilege and honor. And just imagine that happens, and then we find out that some of them are scheming and planning to sneak back into their former dark and sordid life. And if we were hearing that, we'd think, what are you doing? I mean, the incongruity of it all. Well, so it is with us. It is incongruous. It's ridiculous. It's even foolish for us to do that. To not allow grace to motivate us, to not allow grace to coach us. It's just incongruous. It's ridiculous. It's foolish to live a life of sensuality, to live a life of self-indulgence. See, what God is saying is, I want you to learn from grace. Now, in verse 12, it says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to do this double denial, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. But then it goes on to say this. It's also teaching us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I want to break those phrases down. When it talks about living sensibly, I think it's talking about an inward, internal aspect. We're to be characterized not by self-indulgence, which is what the world is really pursuing, but rather self-control. You see, we are to live sensibly. When it talks about living righteously, I think this is an outward term towards other people. We are to live, grace teaches us, we're to live rightly. We're to live rightly as we relate to our spouse, as we relate to our children, as we relate to our siblings, our brothers and sisters, as we relate to our neighbors. We're to live rightly as we relate to our coworkers. We're to live rightly as we relate to our parents. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to anybody this morning? I mean, as we talk about how that's what grace teaches us to do, to live rightly as we relate to our spouse and to our children and to our siblings and to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to our parents. It teaches us and instructs us. It's life coaching us to not only say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, but to live sensibly righteously and godly. And I think this godly aspect is the upward aspect. 
Grace is coaching us to live in light of His presence. It's coaching us to honor Him with our choices. It's coaching us to give Him the preeminence in our life. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We obviously live in the present age, but we're not to live like the present age or to live for the present age. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who is coming back, who gave himself for us, verse 14, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. Interesting little phrase there, zealous for good deeds. You know, I look at something like that and I think, I wonder if when someone thinks about Bruce, would one of the phrases they would use to describe me, he is sold out to doing good deeds. He is just zealous for good deeds. Is that the kind of a thing that people would conjure up when they're trying to describe your life? But you see, that's part of what grace teaches us. God wants to put together a people who are zealous for good deeds. Have you noticed something about this world in which we live that it is very me-centered? It's very self-serving. And grace, you see, men and women, calls us to be self-denying. Grace calls us to have an outward focus. Grace calls us to be into serving other people. Now, once you begin to talk about good deeds and good works, it, it brings up an issue that we talked about earlier in our study. Go a few pages to the left in your Bible to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9 and 10. We want to talk a little bit about grace and good works. Grace and good works. And we saw from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Here comes the phrase, not as a result of works that no one may boast. And we emphasize good works are not a condition of salvation. You can't do enough good to earn it. But what it goes on to say is that good works are to be a normal consequence of salvation. Notice verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. We are his handicraft created in Christ Jesus, notice this, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them, so that we would live a life of good works. See, good works are part of God's plan. They're part of God's plan for you. They're part of God's plan for me. And good works express honor to God. 
And you can just jot down these passages and look them up later. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we've looked at it right here. Um, Matthew 5, 16, John 15, 8, 2 Corinthians 9, 13, 1 Peter 2, 12, and 4, 10, and 11. All of them stress the fact that good works are part of God's plan for us and that good works express honor to God. Now, I'm going to be very honest for just a second here, and I want to say this. If, if you are a recipient of God's amazing grace, this is going to be extremely frank, okay? If you're a recipient of God's amazing grace, just all based on Scripture, and you're not consistently serving other people, and you're not consistently engaged in doing good deeds, that is an anomaly. Men and women, that is abnormal. There's nothing normal about So let me just ask you the question, how are you serving him by serving others? I'm not talking about what you did two years ago or this and that that happened back then. I'm talking about right now. How are you serving him by serving others? See, amazing grace takes us to school. And we have been in school for some nine or ten weeks. So the question for me, the question for you, is what have you learned from amazing grace? Now, if I had my way, what we would do right now is we would all take several deep breaths And we would just simply reflect for a little while. And we would let the fact that grace wants to be our life coach just soak in a little bit. We would allow ourselves to listen to the Holy Spirit. By the way, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit is speaking to each one of us today. Now, that's what I'd like to do. We really don't have time for that. But I would encourage you, maybe later today or this week, to do that very thing, to take a deep breath, to reflect, and let the grace of God soak in and say, what is it that the grace of God is coaching me in? What does it want to teach me? Now, as we close today, I do want us to have two questions for reflection, and I encourage you to write these down. Two questions for reflection. Here's the first one. Have you been excusing and winking at sin in your life? You don't need to tell me. You just need to answer that question for yourself. And if so, my appeal to you would be to confess it and to address it. Have you been excusing and winking at sin in your life? And here's the second question for reflection. How long has it been since you told the Lord Jesus how amazed you are by grace. How long has it been since he heard that coming from your mouth, from your heart, since you just said to him, I am completely amazed, God, 
by your grace towards me. As the worship team comes up and prepares to sing a closing song for us, I I want to close in a little different way. I'd encourage you to close your Bible up because what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you some verses from Proverbs chapter 3, and, and they're verses that are from the translation, the message. And what I want you to do is, we're going to do this differently. I want you to close your eyes. I'd encourage you to close your eyes right now. And as I read these words to you, what I want you to hear is grace personified speaking to you. It's going to be just as if the Heavenly Father was audibly talking to you, as if the Lord Jesus was here speaking to you. So are you ready now? I want you to have your eyes closed. I want you to listen to what grace and God has to say right now. Good friend, don't forget all I've taught you. Take to heart my commands. They'll help you live a long, long time, a long life lived full and well. Don't lose your grip on love and loyalty. Tie them around your neck. Carve their initials on your heart. Earn a reputation for living well in God's eyes and the eyes of the people. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. Run to God. Run from evil. Your body will glow with health. Your very bones will vibrate with life. Honor God with everything you own. Give Him the first and the best. Your barns will burst. Your wine vats will brim over. And we thank you, Father, for your amazing grace. Let's now worship him by singing about his grace. Grace.